0: To The Anthroposopher, where we bring anthroposophy to life through interviews, conversations, and explorations. I'm Lara Scapatici, your host of The Anthroposopher, the Anthroposophical Society in America's podcast. In this episode with Mary Stewart Adams, we talk about the story in our stars for 2019. What are the celestial events happening that we should be tuned into? Why should we be tuned in to celestial events in the first place and what exactly is a star lore historian find out more with Mary now Thank you Mary Stewart Adams for joining me today from Michigan you're Thank you yeah Yes and we're in the heart of um winter
1: right now basically so I know there's been wind and ice and Okay. Yeah, we've had an amazing winter. I mean, when you live in northern Michigan, you're really ha- happy about the, the mystery of the snow and the wind and everything. It's like, yes, we're having a true winter. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful.
0: Well, we happen to be having one out here in California, which is rather, okay. <laughs> rather strange.
1: All, all of us are getting it. Now. All of us yeah. are
0: getting it, yeah. So um, I'm so glad you're joining us um, on the Anthroposopher. And part of what I thought we could explore today is just your title which is so amazing to me um and so for people listening it's star lore historian so mary Stuart adams star lore historian so if you could just tell us a little bit about what is a star lore historian um yeah yeah
1: yeah, i'm happy to it's actually uh so let's start with a confession first it's a title that i made up because i spent years trying to figure out how do i explain to someone what I'm doing because in order to be hired as a presenter or to go teach in a community college or write for a newspaper all of these things that I was doing people want to say and you are a a a what you know so part of what happened was I was in England for an associative economics conference with Christopher Houghton Budd who has done extensive work with Rudolf Steiner's work in the world economy And he corrected someone who referred to him as an economist. He said, no, 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 I'm an economics historian. And it was like a light bulb went off. And I said, Christopher, I'm going to use that. And he said, okay, just make it work. And so I thought, all right, star lore historian, because I had spent most of my life studying the stories about the night sky, you know, so not just the astrology, not just the astronomy, not just the astrosophy, but what is the story that human beings tell themselves throughout the ages about the the night sky? Because this reveals something about who we are as a people. And that was what fascinated me the most, was the stories. And, um, and how you can find the stars tucked into things like fairy tales and poetry and architecture and anywhere that it's like the stars were hidden. And I was on this journey, like a treasure hunt to try to find them. Ooh. And how do I say, like, I can't just say to the newspaper editor, well, I'm on a treasure hunt for stars. And could you let me write about it for other people who might want to go hunting with me? <laughs> you know, so saying star lore historian, there's a, an opportunity to understand, like, I understand like folklore, you know, the lore of something like this is the story, right? And never maybe heard about it with the stars, but then, oh, there's like this history that, like we don't always have the same understanding of, of a subject. Like what the stars were for the ancient Egyptians is different than what they are for us here in the 21st century. And through every age from that time until now, people have been crafting a story. So beautiful. That's one way to answer that.
0: Yeah, that is yeah. so great. And I, I mean, I love that in the work that you've done with us is, you know, connecting it to fairy tales, connecting it to the human experience, connecting it yes. to ancient experience. And um, yeah, so just so people know, we have um, a webinar coming up with you shortly. And if you've already missed it and you're tuning in late to this podcast, um, you can go get it on our store, anthroposophy.org slash webinars. Um, you can pick it up there. But uh, we are going to talk about the story in our stars for 2019. Uh, and so let's, um, you know, I, I want to say before we even go there, so you name yourself Star Lore Historian. Yeah. Obviously this is connected to anthroposophy for you. What how did you get connected to Anthroposophy?
1: I mean, yeah. so I will try to be brief, but it's, you know, it's, it's the story of one's incarnation, right? <laughs> it's hard to, it's hard to say like, well, let's see, I was born in 63. And then I, <laughs> so I um, just recently, uh, okay, let me say it this way, because I am somebody who studies the stars in relationship to human life and into cultural epics then I think it's a fitting context for me to give because right now I am what's re- in the age that is referred to as the third nodal return so it's this rhythm that repeats in every human life every 18 and a half years and I'm going through that for the third time and it's also right at the eve of Saturn's second return so these are really interesting things from the perspective of the astrologer and At this point in my life, looking back, I will now answer this question, how did I get to Anthroposophy? Because I had to get here before I can tell you what I'm about to tell you. So when I was in my maybe 32nd year, this is 1995, I went to my first lecture at the Rudolf Steiner House in Ann Arbor. And it was a lecture being given by Hazel Straker. She was a colleague of Willie Zucker who really did the work to develop Astrosophy, the star wisdom of Astrosophy that is inspired by Anthroposophy. And I was really excited about this lecture because she was going to talk about the great conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter. And I was like, great, I know some astrology. And then I got there and she was going to talk about it in relationship to the conversion of Saul at the gates of Damascus, which is a story in the Bible. And I was like, well, you know, I was force-fed scriptures when I was in boarding school, so I know some of that stuff too. And then she was talking about this event recurring. And I was like, wait a minute, you mean all of these things go together? Like these stories that come out of it's kind of like ancient archetypes or ancient history or ancient religion and together with what's going on contemporaneously with the stars like these things you can know this now so i had to hang on to my seat i was like this is what i'm gonna do this is like i knew i knew some astrology i already considered myself somebody being on an anthroposophical path but when she started speaking i had this epiphany that what my, my experience of anthroposophy, my path into it was going to be with the stars. This is how I'm going to understand this. This is the context that I want. So a year later in 1996, Hazel Straker came back again to our community at the time I was living near Ann Arbor. And after her really powerful lecture, um, I approached her and I asked her, how do I become an astrosopher? And she asked me my name. And I said, my name is Mary Adams, and her response to me, which was very sacred, but her response to me was to chant my name to me three times. And -hmm. then she just turned around and went on about her work, and I I stood there, and at the time, I was kind of confounded and confused, And, and as time went on, and still now, it continues to grow, the significance of being called that way. It was in total and complete freedom. It was speaking my name to me about who I am on my path. And it left me to find my way. So to figure out, like, how do I describe this thing that I'm doing? So years later, I can say, oh, I am a star lore historian. I always had a hard time describing myself as an astrologer because I ended up not taking what might be considered a, an orthodox path of study because it was really... She, the way she called it forth for me, it was like, You're going to do this. You're going to figure this out. I'm not going to tell you what book to read. I'm not going to tell you what lecture to listen to. I'm not going to tell you what direction to go. So it was really, it's really been a powerful experience. And I, I would just like to share that I d- just learned last week that Hazel Straker passed on last year in October. Um, she was living in the United Kingdom. And we stayed in touch through correspondence. but less so in later years and I kind of sensed that this was coming but it's it's a remarkable experience that uh that that the role she played in my life was so significant by speaking my name to me in answer to this question how do I how do I become that which I seek in my life and to have your name spoken to yourself that way is really amazing that is such a powerful story
0: and so unusual in some ways that... Really? Yes. You know, that it, it was, <clears throat> I can see that it would be confounding and profound and um, something to look back on with a bit of
1: awe, is what I think. It hear. is, because I think that, so as an anthroposophist, a lot of the work and study is trying to understand these mysteries of karma, the mystery of repeated earthly incarnations, like how do we find evidence of these things? And then not only how do we find evidence of them, because perhaps I'm predisposed to believing that, or perhaps I'm predisposed to not believing that at all. And so I don't, you don't ever want to be in this place of a you know, self-fulfilling prophecy, like I believe this and so give me, you know, give me proof, give me evidence. Like how do we keep the door open so that that which is true can reveal itself? And in that process... This this idea that somebody could call you forth by speaking the name that you bear in this life, it's out of this recognition that you carry a particular karma and a particular karmic necessity. And it's in everything you are. It's in the way you gesture with your hand. It's the color of your hair. It's the language you speak. It's in your name. And somebody that has the wisdom of that, I mean, I don't pretend to be in that place, but just I feel so blessed that she saw something in me that was that that was all she had to do was speak my name. And so, yeah, it took a lot of years. I'm not going to pretend like that made it an easy path because self knowledge is the hardest path. Mm -hmm. And so I think I probably made a lot of mistakes along the way, but I learned a lot. I've learned a lot. And now I'm old enough to say, okay, I still have to learn a lot more, but I'm grateful for the mistakes. I'm grateful for the opportunities. And, um, I'm just really grateful. I remember also later saying to, I asked Hazel, I said, so which, um, which Zodiac is correct? Is it like the sidereal or the tropical or the geocentric or the heliocentric? And she said, they all are. Hmm. So she was always giving these answers that kept me in complete freedom to find, find your way. And, tr- and I knew that she trusted that I would.
0: Hmm. And so,
1: you know, see, this is what we do for each other. We affirm one another, so I I see you, and I know that you will make your way, and even if you don't get an answer from me, you will find the answer, and it'll be in freedom, so. That's incredible, yeah, Yeah. wow. Yeah, that's how I got to my particular path in anthroposophy, but I would just then also qualify it by saying that I first learned about Rudolf Steiner when I was 18. Mm. Um, same time I met astrology though and the astrology was a lot easier to get a hold of (laughs) (laughs) that's true (laughs) my mom and my sister were really into Steiner and I was like okay this stuff is kind of weird but (laughs) I want to be in their conversation you know because all my life I was lusting after that my sister's six years older than me and they always had coffee together and things like I was always like I want to be part of the club and So, I mean, these are really innocent things, but it was really genuine in me. It's like, all right, they're talking about this guy, Rudolf Steiner, and I want to be in that conversation. So even though it's strange to me, I'm going to have to like, Hmm. I'm going to have to stick with it so I can figure this out. And yeah. Well, I'm glad you stuck with it. (laughs) Yes, and please thank them for me. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's something about anthroposophy is it's so affirming of the true nature of being human. We are becoming human. And so I allow myself, perhaps it's just my own fantasy, but I allow myself to think about these really human responses, you know, because... I know that there are a lot of people who feel like finally somebody's speaking my language and although i did eventually come to a place of like oh yeah this is like this is why i was born i didn't start there it started with this oh this is kind of odd mm-hmm. and how do i wrap my head around this and it was a lot easier for me to look at the rhythms of the planets and to say, oh, okay, Saturn means this, and if you put it over there, that's one thing, and if you stick it there, it's another thing, and I mean, I just, that was like doing chemistry, like combining elements, and saying, oh, look what, look what's happening. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. Right, well, it's interesting, because as you're talking, I feel like, and I'm sure for people that are listening, there's just such a spiritual quality in the way you're talking about life, that, you know, we're, just so busy in our days and making our lists and getting in the car and doing that. But just the way that you're reflecting on your experiences um, yeah, has such a spiritual quality to it that, you know, I think, I know I'm sitting here like, oh man, am I, am I doing that? Like, am I, am I looking, am I perceiving things in that way? And I yeah. think that that's such a gift. Um, even just hearing you talk about things, um, well, it offers thing
1: that. So, yeah, I, you know, I would say that part of that is trying, okay, so part of it is doing the star work and feeling held and contained somehow by this inner picture that you create when you start to understand the constellations of the zodiac or the patterns made by the stars in relationship to one another but also even quite selfishly early on I figured out that okay I am the subject matter my Mm. life is the place where I'm doing the research so Mm. I'm not looking just at me Mary Stuart Adams it's like okay if this is an expression of a human life given these set of circumstances, then I need to pay attention. What happens in this human life? What dreams come, what encounters happen, what thoughts, what, uh, what rhythm, what things repeat. And so it really has been this really, I think amazing journey of trying to understand the self by investigating the human life that I have. And it, you know, there is some gratification in being Mm self-aware. Um, but it's a fine line. You know, we can be self-indulgent and we can be selfish. But then also you can say, well, I have to begin with myself in terms of like this human life that I'm li- living is is where I'm going to do my research. Mm. Yeah. That's great. You know, I
0: I had this interview with Joan Slee um, from the leadership at the Gertiana, yeah. one yeah. of the first ones I did. And she said, you know, we have to take ourselves seriously. Yes. And so... Yes. that is part of what you're saying It's like, here we are, how are we carrying things? What are we doing? What does that mean? What did that encounter look like? Hmm, what role? And so I hear that like um, joy and seriousness through your reflection. Okay, so I know people are like really wanting to know about 2019 in the stars. So um, if, if they want the full picture, they're gonna have to come to the webinar. Right, right, right. <laughs> but um, I, let's, let's, can we give them a bit of a taste of what we're looking at? Yeah, for? I yeah. mean,
1: it's, it's fascinating to think about how the story in the stars changes from one year to the next. And then the journey you go on to find out like what is the mood of this year, right? So I have been doing this since I was 18. Um, didn't know it then so much, but now it's much more clear to me, oh, this is what I've been doing. And and the, the mood of the year presents itself through these celestial gestures. And this year, I would say probably the biggest thing that's happening um, is the transit of the planet Mercury across the face of the sun. So if this was the moon, we would call it an eclipse. So it looks to us like Mercury is going right in front of the Sun, but it's too far away. It's too small, so it can't block the entire surface of the Sun. But this is a rare event. It only happens one, like maybe 13 times a century. Oh wow! Uh, yeah. So it, the the transit of Venus is much more rare. That only happens every 120 years. But Mercury, there's like there's only three things that can go between the Earth and the Sun. And the Sun that's the Moon, Venus, and Mercury. You know. So when they do, like look at the big. A sensation that goes around having an eclipse, particularly, you know, like total solar eclipses, this is a big deal, then one of these two planets do it. It's also a big deal. So knowing that that's going to happen, um, then I kind of back out of that event, which comes in November, and look at what else might be happening that suggests that the Mercury transit is setting up the mood for this year. So that's what we're going to explore in the webinar. And I see it in the date that the Mercury transit is happening, which is November 11th, like 1111, Mm. which is the feast of St. Martin. Um, And just to give you a little taste of then what happens to me as a storyteller. Oh, Martin, like he gives his cloak. So there's something about like, maybe what Mercury is doing this year has to do with this story of not only offering my cloak to someone, but am I my brother's or my sister's keeper? Like, now going toward that event. I might look for ways in my life that I'm given an opportunity to show up for someone. This is how I weave this cloak that I would then have to offer when Mercury makes its transit. What we'll talk about on the webinar will be what are some of the other celestial phenomena happening that help build, build the stairway to that event so we can be prepared when it happens. It will be visible throughout the United States if you've got the right conditions. You can't look straight at the sun um, you wouldn't, even if you could with protective eye gear, you still need magnification in order to see Mercury. So we'll talk about some of that on the webinar. But yeah. And also, the, you know, like Easter, we've got a hidden Easter happening this year. So we're going to talk about that too. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> okay. I need to hear a little bit more about that. Okay. <laughs> okay. So this has to do with the Gregorian calendar rules, which were instituted in 1582. And it fixes equinox to March 21st, even though Equinox is a moment that's determined by the relationship between sun and earth and these are celestial bodies in motion and so that relationship is dynamic and it's always changing. So this year equinox astronomically actually happens on March 20th, but because the calendar and then the then the full moon is just a few hours later also on March 20th, but because the calendar rules say say that equinox is March 21st, that technically that first full moon of the spring which should be used to determine the festival is kind of disqualified by the calendar rules that human beings have made, and so Easter happens a whole month later. Um, Maybe I didn't explain that really clearly, but in in order to determine the date for Easter, you have to look at, um, it's the first Sunday after the first full moon after the equinox. So there's these three things. It's the sun-earth relationship, sun-moon, or excuse me, sun and earth, Earth and moon, and then the human being in their calendar. And so this year, the moon comes full before the church recognizes equinox having happened.
0: Okay, so are, so you're telling me that, oh, this is so fascinating. Okay, so first of all, when the calendar for Easter is sent, the people that are determining the calendar in the world are looking
1: at the moon, right? Is that what you're saying? Okay, so this is what, how I would say it. <laughs> in 1582, or let's just say in the Middle Ages, the most important thing every year was determining the correct date for determining the observation of Easter. Like that was far and away the most important thing. And so at that time in the late 1500s, it became clear that the calendar system that was in use was not accounting for the precession, this motion and change between the earth and the sun that happens very slowly through time. And the astronomers were able to determine and advise Pope Gregory the Thirteenth that the calendar was 11 days off. Okay, so if you're 11 days off when you're trying to date Easter, you're going to land on the wrong day. And so they established a system whereby they would determine the date for Easter. And there were certain things that came out of traditions that had been developing since the Council of Nicaea that happened in the 700s when it was decided that it would be happening around the same spring moon when the Passover was occurring. So there are a lot of um, cultural and religious traditions that played into this. But then this really kind of mathematic equation. So they had to figure out the epact, which is the days that the moon is past new phase at the beginning of the year. And then you add that to uh, something else to determine the golden number. And then you get the dominical letter. And there's these tables that are set up. And then you can predict Easter through the centuries into the future. But one of the things that this, these calendar rules determine is that equinox is on March 21st, period. But because of precession, equinox doesn't always happen on March 21st. And this huh. year, in 2019, equinox is happening on, May, on March 20th, and a few hours later, the moon will be full. Now, the reason this is really important as an anthroposophist is because in speaking about the mystery of the Easter festival and its celebration, what Rudolf Steiner points to is that this is a celestial mystery happening on the stage of the earth and that the correct celebration of it happens only when the right witness arrives and that witness is the moon. And what's happening is, let's imagine the equator of the earth and you project the equator out into space. So just picture a straight line and the sun moves above that straight line. At Equinox in the spring, so we have greater daylight in the northern hemisphere, and when the moon is full, it will be opposite and it goes below that line. So, that moment when the sun and the moon change places in the hemispheres, you could say it's this ascent of the Christ being and the descent of Judas. Like, there's all this imagery that you can put into that, and most cultural traditions honor that moment that mm. that change happens. And in the Christian Practice the first sun day, so the return of the sun. So the first sun day mm-hmm. after that first full moon, which has stepped down below the equator, when the sun has returned north, that's Easter. Aha. Uh-huh. So this year, that astronomically, that's going to happen on March 20th, which means that Easter, the first Sunday, would actually be March 24th. But because the calendar rules disqualify March 20th, the church is looking at the next full moon, which happens on April 19th. So Easter is going to be on April like 21st this year, almost as late as it can be. And what's fascinating about this to me is that has happened before. It also happened in 1924, which was the year before Rudolf Steiner died. It was the last Easter festival that he went through. And it's an interesting contemplation to think about the amount of work that he was bringing at that time. He did a series of lectures on karma. He gave the young doctors um, lectures. He did work with the Eurythmus. There was just this outpouring. And so I, in, in a very tender way, imagined this kind of, like, is it that there's an, an inner and an outer Easter or an astronomical and an ecclesiastical? And what is it that they don't agree? The phenomenon doesn't agree with the calendar that human beings have instituted, respecting the fact that we do have to create a system, um, but it's a system we're fixing based on something that's in motion. So it's, it's challenging, but I think it's exciting. It's like, okay, we could do Easter twice. Right? Well,
0: you know, it is, it is so interesting because it almost feels like that's what life is like now. Like you have to have a system. But you also are having this experience at the same time. And those things don't always line up, right? I, I, I right, just so you got to be free
1: within the system. Yeah.
0: yeah, like there there are so many systems, but at the same time, there's all this experience happening. But for yeah. all of us, you know, with with so many systems imposed upon us. Right. And some are very helpful and some are not so helpful. But at the same time, we're having our human experience within these systems. So how how do we really, you know, we're balancing, we're balancing. We're being asked to balance these things all the time, these different kind of forces.
1: Yes, and I think that when you look at our planetary system and our, um, like the star system within which we find ourselves, it can be really supportive for that because the planets are in motion, the stars appear to be fixed. And so something is held that is yet in rhythmic motion. So there's this really wonderful quality of time-based it's happening um and i'll explain it this way so in the middle ages you know the the highest education happened when you could master the seven liberal arts and actually um, they're broken into two parts those there's what's known as the trivium or the three that have to do with the word so there's uh, grammar and rhetoric and dialect and then the quadrivium the four remaining actually are older and were used in initiation in Egypt. And so these three that had to do with the word were added later, but these four of the quadrivium had to do with number. And Mm. so you have um, arithmetic, geometry, music, or harmony, and then astronomy. And I just recently came upon a beautiful description of this quadrivium that first it's the number through arithmetic and then geometry is number experienced in space. And then harmony is number experienced in time, and astronomy is number experienced in space and time. And so this is just what, what, so what you were just saying, like we need to have an experience of ourselves in these systems, but we need freedom. It's OK. I recognize myself as a being that is w- right now knowing self within these. Space and time,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so then when Rudolf Steiner makes a statement like when you when you meet somebody, like you see an entire universe in front of you, and it's not just that the planetary spheres lend their influence to the rhythmic organization of our inner organs, so the beat of the heart and the lung and the spleen and the liver, or just that you know Aries rules the head and Gemini is the limbs, and but that there is this encounter of beingness in space and time. Mm. It's, just, it's just so deep. It's like, oh, I could think about that for a long time. Yeah. We can sleep in there and have these dreams and have these encounters. And it's, it's so exciting. Like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> it that's is. what it exciting. feels like to me. <laughs>
0: oh, no, it really is exciting. I mean, I, I absolutely, I mean, there's, yeah, like you said, you could be contemplating this for a lifetime. a lifetime yeah and i'm glad people do okay so we've got hidden easter yes we've (laughs) got the the mercury that's right the mercury transit wow um and then i know we're going to talk about this a little bit more and maybe we can sort of conclude on this thought but this idea of the year being the year of the quest yeah. And so can you just touch on that a little bit and why is it the year of the quest and what does yeah. that mean
1: for us? Yeah, there's a couple things that go into that. And if we, since we've already discussed Mercury, I mean, he's the, he's the guardian of travelers, right? You know, if you're going to go a journey, Mercury is, your, is your, your mythic being, but also Mercury is the escort of souls. And so you see oftentimes in the Greek myth with Hermes, you know, he's the psychopomp. He's the one that takes the soul across the threshold. So for instance, with Persephone, when she is granted permission by Hades, Pluto to return to the upper world, it's Hermes that's there to escort her. Um, so that's the first thing It's like, okay, the, this, this um, energy that has this reputation, you could say, or this story that has to do with traveling is making a move this year. But then at the beginning of of this year, on January 1st, actually, the moon was a crescent and it was very uh, close to the planet Venus, which is the brightest object in our sky after the sun and the moon. The next brightest thing is always Venus. And so this has a, a certain, that's kind of like a celestial signature in and of itself, by itself. That happened at dawn on January 1st. And then on December 29th, so almost at the very end of the year, that, same configuration is going to happen again but now it will be in the evening sky and it will look more like more so than it did at the beginning of the year venus will look like it's actually sitting in the chalice of the moon and this is in Rudolf steiner speaking about the quest for the holy grail he describes this particular configuration so when i saw that it was happening at the beginning of 2019 at the end of 2019 in a year when mercury is making a transit it was just like whoa this is questing this is a journey this is something that we could be called to but it's that it's it's that you know do i recognize myself as the one that is is journeying or you could say may human beings hear it like is there something in this i need to know now that i'm part of the conversation and so how do i enter into that phenomena that I'm seeing. You know, I don't just go outside and say, Hey moon, I'm here. I come, you know, it's not like that. It's more that I look at the course of this year as one where I'm taking a journey towards something that will bring greater self-knowledge, greater awareness of my connection to my environment. Could be my family, could be my school, could be my nation, my, you know, the world. How do I give expression to that? And this is a journey. I'm taking step-by-step each day through this year. Hmm. And so, um, Mercury, when we, when we do the webinar, Mercury will have just made its, just turning retrograde for the first time this year. And it will make three retrogrades this year, which is typical. Mercury will do that every year. Um, but then when you start to break down where Mercury is in the Zodiac and then where it is in our calendar that this is happening, it starts to build the story even more. So we'll talk about that quite specifically for the webinar. Uh, but that's the setup, is the crescent moon with Venus at dawn on January 1st, crescent moon and Venus at dusk on December 29th with a Mercury transit. That really is the signature of taking a quest. And I, you know, so reading Parsifal is a great way to experience this. You know, and it's great because Parsifal is, you know, told to you know, don't ask all these questions. But on the other side, you have Gawain, who like refuses to not ask the question. You know, So there's just this really wonderful opportunity when you study something like that to be like okay is this the time to ask a question or is this the time to not do i am i Gawain or Parsible in this moment mm. and do i recognize that there will be a consequence in my speaking or not speaking and we we have to self-assess more and more we become um more responsible for our own activity you know we can't fault a system or we can't fault uh an elder we can't fault something it's it's we have to self-direct I could go on about that, but just this, yeah, it's rooted in our, in our concept about our planetary system. Mm. Once, once Nicholas Copernicus introduces the idea kind of generally to the, to the, like the general public, that the earth is in motion around the sun, something is surrendered in our self-directing forces, something Mm -hmm. outside of us. And we, we are going around something that is more powerful and has a greater influence, Um, you know, whether you describe it as inertia or gravitational force or central bank or, you know, the the doctor out there that's going to prescribe, you know, that place where we give the authority over to something else. And I'm not saying that that's bad, but recognizing where we surrender and how it's easy to surrender because we have this concept about our planetary system. I mean, if you're a star lore historian, right, you're going to jump to the stars as the place where you can find definition. Mm. So maybe not everybody's going to go there, uh, but, <laughs> but, but we'll go I, there with you. That's yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's a deep philosophy in it. And when, when Johannes Kepler came along after, after Copernicus and tried to give his description of the harmony of the cosmos, you know, he was still a practicing astrologer, and it wasn't the astrology that he thought would offend anybody it was the, he thought that this new concept would offend the philosophers. You know, so this is not not typically understood in 21st century. Like we would think, oh, he had to hide his astrology. No, 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 no. He didn't want to offend the philosophers by creating this, you know, supporting this new system. So he was always looking for a harmonious expression of the cosmos. And he figured out that if he, calculated the surface area of the platonic solids these five shapes that he could predict the orbits and the orbit the the platonic solid that the surface area calculation predicted the orbit of the earth is the dodecahedron oh my yeah so it it gets really interesting it's like oh oh i i
0: think we're gonna have to do this again (laughs) Okay.
1: <laughs> and again, and again, and again. Yeah. I mean, it keeps building on itself. And these are just, they're, they're just little pieces. But when you bump into them, it's like a, it's like a star lights up. And there is this really sacred experience of starlight. You know, we see it at night. Uh, we know that the star, you know, they're, they're referred to poetically as the day blind stars. You know, because the stars are out there when the sun is up, but the sun is our brightest star. So we, we don't see them but there is this really lovely quality of how a star can shine through the dark, but not diminish the dark. So how do we do that as a human being? Like we'll say, Oh, go find your star. Oh, you're a star. Like be a star. Well a star is that which can shine through the dark and not diminish the sacredness there. How do you do that? And so having these moments of, Oh, and it might be just a flash, but then if I can find endurance in that and persevere and, and kind of plow through with the thought and get to um, a harmony or a construct that will help for a moment and then have the freedom to let it go and say, okay, I'm going to let the sun rise. That's all going to go away. Right. <laughs> and then I'll try to find it again. You know, these are, yeah, there's kind of a, a really contemplative experience of starlight in that. Like, Okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, you've given us so many like poetic and beautiful and also like practical images to work with. So
1: yeah. I, I appreciate you your saying that because it's an affirmation that, you know, when Hazel Straker called her name, <laughs> she <laughs> was like, really, like, you're going to be yourself about this. Anything else won't do. You have to be who you are mm. and you have to have the courage of who you are. You know, and I would say that sometimes that's there, and I could say, yeah, and other times it's, oh, shaking in my boots, and I don't know who I am right now, you know, and, and allowing that, that uh, we'll get there, and, and maybe when I'm the one that's not seeing myself, I, I know that there are others who see me, and so we can affirm for one another, and this is where I would look at, like, what Mercury is doing this year at the Feast of St. Martin, Like this is what Martin did. I see you shivering there. Here, take my cloak. I can help. I'm not the one that needs all of this right now. You need it. And when I'm in need, then you'll be there to give for me. And it's not an exact exchange between just two people. But when we have that gesture to the world, the world has that gesture back to us. And we can trust that.
0: Thanks for joining us today on The Anthroposopher. Stay tuned for our next episode.